Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. I'll be reading this morning from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1 starting with verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The grass withers and the flower fades. All right. Uh, kiddos, if, do we have uh, EGC today? Yes, we do. So, first and second grade, if you would like, you can go over across here. Miss Rose is back there ready to help corral you a little bit into learning. And then Miss Lisa just went out this way uh, for third, fourth, and fifth, where we will walk through the catechism. And uh, again, we have cleverly devised ways to fool you into learning stuff. They're all gone, right? All right. For the rest of you, again, I don't, we're, we got a little bit late start this morning, so we're not going to stand up, uh, but if you want to look down the row or those immediately in front or behind you and greet one another with a holy fist bump, uh, you can do that uh, and just say a quick hello and welcome to people that you may not recognize. If you're brand new and somebody greets you that's been here a while, make sure they offer to take you to lunch. All right. This was a little subdued. Is like, we're all, everybody okay? Or if, if, if we all just calm down now that we've kind of stayed in our seats, maybe that's it. Uh, all right, this morning we continue on in our sermon series through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and I want to talk about the problem of human suffering. Just making sure nobody's like, yes! Um, okay, has anybody not thought about this? 
Has anybody not had to like sit with this? Watch the news, saw a report, got a text from a friend, experienced loss. I mean, it, it, it's, it's everywhere. And so should we be pessimists and just indulge the Eeyores of the faith, right? Should we be optimists and silver line everything? Sunday's coming. Not, not this week, though. Got to wait for next week. Should we be realists? And I honestly don't know what that means. I mean, I know what we think it means, but I don't, when it comes to human suffering, I don't, what does that mean? Um, and, and here's what's interesting. There are some critical markers of human suffering that are actually decreasing data-wise. Racism and poverty, on the whole, data-wise, have decreased in, in the ways that you can mark that. Uh, and, and even from the 80s are actually at a, at a significant anxiety and suicide through the roof. So are we better or, or worse? Um, and just a moment so that we can all confess this here internally. When we talk about this, when we look at data, um, I'm, I'm almost guaranteeing Maybe not, but maybe inside your mind, we have like, we know, we know who to blame. We know who's behind human suffering. Right? And so maybe there's just a moment of confessing to like, to just, you know, put that sidearm away for just a minute. And, and let, let's, let, let's let the press off the hook here or whoever your uh, evil dignitary of choice is. And pocket that, maybe save it for lunch discussion, and not, deter, not blame, you know, who's responsible for the suffering in the world. And maybe just kind of feel the weight of human suffering. Um, it's real. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. Most of the time, all of our outrage online is because we don't want to deal with the reality of human suffering. So it's, it's easier for us to just take these things out on other people. On the one hand, we avoid it and we hate it and we dread ever having to encounter it. And on the other hand, I don't know if you've ever noticed, we tend to attach ourselves to it. You ever notice that? There's numerous examples, but like when I was in seminary, professors who were very wise otherwise, uh, they would do prayer requests before class, some of them. And, uh, and I'm not laughing that they prayed for people. I'm laughing that they offer us prayer requests in, in a seminary class because, and I, we've, I, like, we've heard this or experienced it or even in our minds when somebody says, uh, are there any prayer requests? Where do you go? What's the worst possible thing happening right now, and what's my attachment to it? Is that, I mean, kind of. Don't we do that? My cousin's uncle's dog's friend last night, and then it's complicated. We don't want to talk about it, and then when we have the opportunity, we want to talk about it. Um... 
people come to faith because of suffering. Historically, people have come to faith because of suffering. People walk away from the faith or faith altogether because of suffering. We motivate the world to action, sometimes really well and sometimes really manipulatively through human suffering. And that was not like a subtweet of Sarah McLaughlin. Those who have ears. It's a very referenced joke, but I'll, I'll let, let it sit there for a minute. Um, I was listening to a podcast this week, and through a weird reference, it, it talked about the French Revolution. So we're going to talk a little bit about the French Revolution here. I'm, I just want to make sure. There's no, like, French Revolutionary experts, right? Just in case I absolutely butcher history. We're all going to be okay with that. All right, prove me wrong. And if you need to interrupt me in a time, that's, that's you can. Um, just do it friendly. Uh, a lot of actually transformation in the way that we do democracy came from the French Revolution. There was a lot of ideas. And basically what happened was France had gone bankrupt because they were financing another revolution that was taking place to kind of take some shots at their cross-town rivals. Uh, and, and France sponsored the home team uh, in the American Revolution. And don't worry, we would pay that back in World Wars I and II. Um, but they had basically bankrupted themselves. All the noble class essentially resigned their nobility because they did not want to pay the bill. And France was bankrupt after supporting the American Revolution food shortages, all kinds of stuff. And uh, a lot of various things happened in that, but one of the leaders and the visionaries that arose during the French Revolution as the people began to, uh, to revolt was this guy named Maximilien Robespierre. You ever heard of him? He's, I mean, he's, he's one of the more famous parts of the French Revolution until uh, this other guy, Napoleon, comes along. But, but he's actually one of the visionaries for this whole thing. And Robespierre had some amazing ideas. And I know we kind of take them for granted in our day. But for him, the, the, I mean, for that time, it was fairly radical. Things that we would take for granted. He wanted suffrage for all men. Regardless of race, creed, or color, all men should be able to vote. Not women. We get there. We get there. It happens. Trust me. But not... Not yet. But he wanted all men equally to be able to vote. Uh, he was big on uh, the right to bear arms, uh, the right to, to, uh, to protect yourself against the government. He uh, championed the idea of due process, that no citizen should just be subject to the whims of the government. He detested the death penalty as a moral, as a horrific uh, amoral or, or unmoral activity. And now Robespierre was leading the revolution, but as, as happens, there's multiple groups that would come up. And he became, he wasn't the chairman, but he was heavily involved in this committee called the Committee for Public Safety. Well, other revolutionary groups, when there's a revolution, there's lots of different revolutionary groups that pop up and that want to take their turn. 
Uh, and so one of the other revolutionary groups, that they wanted some similar things, but there were other areas that they were a little bit more radical. Uh, and Robespierre became, it, one of the things that, uh, that was uh, unique about him was that he never took a bribe from somebody trying to, to buy him off. In fact, his nickname was Maximilian the Incorruptible. But as he began to progress, as he began to make progress toward his grand vision, some of these other groups started rising up. And his idealism for France became so much of his fixation that he saw these other factions purely as enemies. Not like we disagree on some things, but let's unite in harmony, but as enemies that have to be gotten out of the way need to be dealt with. And so Robespierre became one of the architects, and there's some, there's, there's some uh, various accounts on this, but essentially he became one of the architects, uh, for lack of a better word, of what is called the reign of terror. Some of these other revolutionaries, though they were also commoners, were arrested without due process and publicly executed via the guillotine over 16,000 people. Roads would be lined with, with criminals who had betrayed the Romans uh, so that you could be reminded, be very, very careful if you were going to turn on Rome, if you were going to turn on the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. There's danger to doing that. And to be crucified, you were publicly absolute, not just humiliated, you were actually removed from humanity and put on public display. Crowds would gather, laugh, mock, flies and gnats constantly around, rats and birds would peck at their flesh, all while they were still breathing. We wear this as jewelry. We have these hanging in our homes. And, and maybe we don't understand just the level of repulsion that this form of torture had brought. We may look and think that death by guillotine is worse, but actually the guillotine, which was designed by, I can't remember the guy, I think it's like Justin Guillotine. <laughs> uh, is it Justin? Okay. Um, how do you know that, Mike? Justin Guillotine. So the guillotine was actually named after him, not the other way around. That would be weird. But that was actually a very humane, that was considered a very humane way to die, right? It's effective. It's pretty quick. It, it, it does the job but we wouldn't walk around wearing guillotines on our shirts or on our clothing. Um, but hold that thought for a minute because I'm going to come back to that with just a little bit of a twist. Keep in mind just how crazy it is that the cross actually became the unifying symbol for followers of Jesus and how quickly it became the unifying symbol. 
that for followers of Jesus, the cross became what they wanted to be known by. We'll get back to that in a little bit. But the purpose of the crucifixion, the purpose of crucifixion in general was to make even hell seem like a welcome relief. To an outsider, anyone who was crucified was obviously less than human. Whatever crimes they had committed, they were not honorable or honored. They were disgusting. They had become little more than food for scavengers. One scholar said this, uh, put it this way, he said, the crucifixion not only robbed the crucified of their humanity, but also all who were capable of such a cruel form of torture. And even those who would come to observe it, everyone involved lost a measure of their humanity from this form of torture. Very few would argue that Jesus was crucified. Very few would argue against that. He was a threat to the emperor. He was a criminal. He should have learned his lesson before this. But a God? No. Come on. In fact, this death, the crucifixion, actually seals that deal. No God would ever be put to death that way. So go back to the text. Where is the one who is wise? In verse 20, Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in uh, in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. In a creation account, we talked about, uh, there, there's, or actually in the person and work of Jesus, how Jesus was the wisdom by which the world was designed. Proverbs talks about him as the master craftsman beside the creator, ever daily his delight. Uh, the other uh, creation narratives from history also have uh, Marduk, not Marmaduk, Marduk, uh, who um, partnered together with the god EA is actually his his uh, other name, but Enki, uh, who was the god of wisdom. And and wisdom was still part of how the world was created. For the Jews, wisdom was walking in obedience to the law. It was uh, was walking uh, by the commandments, and uh, this was the way for good and healthy living. And then Deuteronomy 21 tells us about those who are put to death are put to death because they are disobedient to the law. They're cursed. And those who hang on a tree, there's a special kind of curse there. They've been found guilty of the most heinous offenses against the law. And if the Messiah of Israel was condemned by the law of Israel, especially for him to be crucified, this would not make sense in any way whatsoever. And so for this to be a stumbling block is, is a given. In fact, you could say that this is a sure sign that Jesus was not the Messiah. For the Greeks, which is much more our style, we would have much more in common with, uh, with the Greek world, um, and, and Romans within that, 
the weight of the form of death that Jesus suffered was equally foolish. The idea that Christians worshipped a man who was found justly guilty in their eyes, punished in such a humiliating way, was decidedly not the kind of God that they were interested in. Michael Bird, uh, who wrote the book that, uh, if you're interested in going through it, What Christians Ought to Believe is a Walk Through the Creeds, uh, records that the earliest form of anti-Christian graffiti was found on Palatine Hill in Rome, and this is a place where uh, men were sent to be trained as imperial slaves, basically. And there's graffiti that's found there that has a cross with a man on it who has the head of a donkey. And then across from that is a kneeling figure bowing down to worship it. In other words, this is, and they, they suspect this is from around 200 A.D. In other words, this is what it looks like to be a Christian is to worship this kind of God. And how foolish that is. In our day, what's the verdict? We want love, we want compassion, we want good thoughts. Um, and we, we do not know what to do with suffering. In fact, most of our lives are kind of built up in a way to avoid it at all costs. Christianity has been given the accusation of divine child abuse by some. Some would say that Christianity not only produces suffering, but champions it. That we could not believe in a God who would allow such cruelty in this world. In fact, I don't know if you've seen this lately. Maybe this has been around for a long time, but I've, I've happened to see it lately. There is now a movement encouraging people not to have children as to bring them into such a cruel world. Uh, one couple who found themselves pregnant shared their testimony on this website uh, where they stumbled onto this movement and decided that this was good and right, decided to have an abortion so as not to bring a child into this cruel world and instead dedicated their time and attention to focus on their fullest enjoyment of life. To alleviate our suffering, oftentimes we put it on somebody else. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The story of the cross is foolishness. It is the epitome of religion gone bad. It goes against everything we hold dear in our world, get ahead, avoid discomfort, Live your best life. And yet Hebrews describes it for Jesus as the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Going back earlier, the cross, very early on, if you get a feel for how foolish this was, 
very early on, the cross, not even the empty tomb, but the cross, is what became the symbol for followers of Jesus. Think about that. This foolish, gruesome form of torture became our rallying cry. It was found everywhere. For those being saved, it is our hope that Christ had died, Christ had risen, and Christ will come again. And we sing this. Hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. I know you know this part. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. We've got one more singing part, so get the voices loosened up here. I don't understand the suffering of the world. I hate it. I don't get it. I cannot make sense of the depravity of human beings who would devise something as absolutely brutal as a crucifixion and yet I know the capacities of my own heart. I know when I am hurt or wounded or when I feel anger or retribution that I am just as capable of things as the man who was largely responsible for so many facets of modern democracy but when people get in the way you got to do what you got to do. I will not attempt to cover over a lot of pain and suffering in our world by ascribing some good, simple theological language to it. Well, it's sin. Yes, it is sin. That's complex. And on the other hand... Taking God out of the equation, I, I get it in our act of retribution. God doesn't exist and I'm mad at him. And it does nothing really to, it, 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 again, I get it, but it doesn't alleviate suffering. Suffering still exists. It takes away hope. Uh, and not only that, but it also takes away any ability that we have, if we're honest, to give any kind of moral good or bad. If we take away any kind of divine person or God, then we can't call any act good or bad. And we can't call evil, evil. We have to name our own meaning. We have to come up with it for our life. And really, we just have to, we're left to make our own meaning and we have to be careful not to think about that too much. But in Christ, hear me on this, God does not fix all of our suffering. 
He doesn't say, in Christ, trust him, and now things will be great. But in Christ, God certainly does not remain aloof from our suffering. He enters in in the most profound ways. He becomes human. And not only that, Jeremy mentioned earlier, I, could have, I should have just left it at Jeremy and prayed and gone home. He, he got my sermon. Uh, he mentioned this earlier. Jesus becomes an oppressed human. He lives as a Jewish man under Roman oppression. He's rejected by the very people he had delivered out of Egypt. He took on the form of man, becoming a lowly servant. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Today is Palm Sunday, as we've mentioned. This is often the day that we remember Jesus entering into Jerusalem with the fanfare and, and, uh, and the crowds welcoming him, uh, the triumphal entry, which is very short-lived. And then we go into the final week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. He entered to cheers. Blessed, are those, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They expected a king, and they expected a king to repel the Romans and alleviate their suffering by overthrowing their earthly oppressors. Jesus would be plotted against by religious leaders. Many of the people in the crowds waving at him when he, come, when he had come into town would eventually probably be paid off as witnesses to bear false testimony against him. He would be arrested. He would be taken to stand before Pontius Pilate. And listen, Pilate in the rest of history is not much He's one of three people that gets named in the creed. Jesus, Mary, and Pilate. It's a bummer. Jerusalem was not a high appointment for a Roman aristocrat. So he was probably somebody's nephew, but not somebody really tremendously well-respected. Pilate was known as being just a horrific antagonist against the Jewish people. And yet, though certainly prideful, there seems to be something almost empathetic, maybe, about the way that he deals with Jesus. Maybe it was the prophetic message given to his wife, or, or it could have just been that he really wanted to stick it to the Jewish religious leaders. But there are two things that Pilate declares as the representation of the Roman government. One, I have examined him and found no fault in him. And two, take him and crucify him. Here again, Christianity, the story of Jesus, finds itself verified and enmeshed in both Roman history and Jewish history, Jews and Gentiles, in a place of Roman oppression over the people of God, he's delivered into a situation where both Jew and Gentile both have a role to play where they could have freed him and yet team up in a weird way. Brought together for the work that Jesus came willingly to accomplish. I want to say something very quickly here. When we go through the text and we talk about these religious leaders. Uh, this has something to do with principle of projecting our suffering, uh, but also, uh, also I just want to say it. 
There is no room anywhere in Scripture or in Christian belief for any even sort of anti-Semitism. There is no room. And the reason I say that is because it's been on the rise. And throughout history, if you study history, Christians have done some absolutely horrific things to the Jewish people. Um, and Jews, even to this day, are among the most threatened group uh, in America. Synagogues are constantly under threat. And so when we preach through Scripture, we have to talk about the religious leaders that were against Jesus, and they were, yes, Jewish. In our day, they would be Christians. People who want a religion above wanting Jesus. People who want a power structure or something in place where they can live comfortably avoiding the necessity of Jesus or live by rules instead of a relationship with him. And then they, when somebody like Jesus comes along, you have to defend it at all costs. But here's the reality. Nobody took Jesus' life. He gave it willingly. And if he would have owned a gun, he still would have given his life willingly. Right? T-shirts for the Second Amendment are... This is when I go off script. Whether it be violence or threats against Jews, Muslims, Hindus, you name it, atheists, it doesn't matter. That is distinctly not Christ-like. Jesus is not one who came and displaced the suffering of the world and put it onto someone else. He is the one so that he could have peace. Jesus faced the sin and suffering of the world and took it upon his own shoulders. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to wonder in awe that he would do that. And then we are also empowered, not necessarily to seek out suffering, but, also, but, but certainly to bear the weight of the world and bring it before Jesus, to mourn with those who mourn, to be the voice of the voiceless, to advocate for the poor, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan. So as we preach throughout these texts, there are always hard things to say about religious leaders, but Jesus didn't die because of the religious leaders. To confess Christ as Savior is to own my own sin and never to blame somebody else. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was the author of the Gulag Archipelago, um, which is a book that's gaining with Russia rising again and a lot of Russia in the news is gaining some prominence. He was taken, literally taken from his home uh, during the Russian revolutions and put in the work camps. He could have, if there was anybody that could easily blame the bad guys versus the good guys, it was him. And yet this is what he says. If only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The confession of any follower of Jesus is not, I am sinful because of all those people. 
The confession of the follower of Jesus is not, it's us against them. The only confession, the confession of Jesus is not that Jesus loved me because I am good, although we function that way a lot. Of course Jesus would love me. When I was a youth minister, I I had a goatee and I played guitar. Of course Jesus could use me. Jesus didn't love me because I am good. He loved me because he is good. Jesus didn't die because of the religious leaders. Jesus died because of me. The story of Jesus is not that we are good. The story of Jesus is that we are loved. And that's far better. I am sinful and yet he loved me. I have brought about and contributed to human suffering through my own ignorance, through not dealing with my own stuff, through not trusting him and and perpetuating all of that. I am sinful and yet he loved me. I can't project my sin onto anybody else. It's mine. All right, we're going to sing one more time before we finish up. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished his dying breath has brought me life i know that it is finished this week is what we call holy week where we look at and remember the last week of jesus earthly life and ministry leading up to the crucifixion and I want to encourage you to be present. Don't jump forward to Easter. Uh, if you, if you, if you uh, have not been at refuge for, for more than a year, we do our resurrection party, but Easter Sunday, um, I wear a tie. So, like, that's, that's the big deal that we do. Um, and I will use my standard joke that I wear ties for weddings, funerals, and resurrections. We don't... We, there's nowhere to hide Easter eggs out there. <laughs> So we can't, we can't do that. We don't, like, we're going to do what we do every Sunday, and we're going to find our hope in the glorious resurrection of Jesus. But don't skip this week. The practice for this week. Actually, I'd love for you to continue. Last week, the practice that we gave was to remind ourselves to declare Jesus as king, remind ourselves that our allegiance is to Jesus as king, and let that marinate in you and remind you and humble you and have to mess with your priorities and, and work on you, and then how fast we go from Jesus as king back to, okay, now to accumulate my stuff, and let that kind of, let that kind of mess with you. But this week, um, to continue that, but uh, just to kind of be present through the week, Last year, two years ago, I don't remember, I did a brief, some videos um, in the book of Mark looking at some of the events of the last week of Jesus' life. I'm going to try to do that again this week. I think we can do it on the app. We're fi- uh, smart people are figuring that out. Um, 
to just kind of put us in the day-by-day of what Jesus is going through in this last week of his life, I want to answer, listen, I, I, don't have, I don't have like the easy, simple answers to suffering in this world. Um, I despise simplistic answers. I despise them. Uh, and suffering is really, really complex. And honestly, worldly theories that it's the good guys versus the bad guys that just doesn't cut it for me. So this week, whatever you face, whatever you read, whatever you see in the news, whatever you encounter in the story of Jesus, don't displace your uncomfort on somebody else. Don't try to appease your suffering by projecting it onto other people. The invitation this week is to be in awe and behold that the God who created all things has entered into our suffering. We're we're used to kings and leaders and rulers and authorities and people with any measure of power blaming others or putting suffering on others. This week, enter in, not only with a theological thought, but also then, how does that mess with me and my wallet and my my beliefs and my love of neighbor and all of that stuff. Um, Be in awe and behold the God who entered into time and history as a servant and let that thought mess with you. The king of all kings took on our pain, our rebellion, our hurt. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you have loved anybody. We say often the story should have been over in Genesis 3, and and yet it wasn't. And could you have waved a magic wand and made it all go away? Could you have just undone it? Could you have started over? Could you, I mean, lots of options. The last one that I would pick, honestly, if I were in charge, is to look at this people who had messed it up time and time again and think, I should enter into that story and bear their suffering and shame. I don't get it. That doesn't make suffering go away. But one day it will. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to love and trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.